Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. So last week we were in Micah chapter 4, and uh, Micah chapter 4 is uh, the theme basically of it is who is like God consoling his people. And what we talked about last week was God's consolation, consoling his people, telling them about the coming kingdom age. And what we're talking about is that thousand year rule of Christ on the earth. Well, chapter 5 is another chapter of God consoling his people. And so part 2 is chapter 5, and it's who is like God consoling his people with the consolation of the coming Messiah, uh, who's going to usher in uh, this, uh, the, uh, the kingdom age. And so chapter 5 deals with prophecies regarding the Messiah. It's a very messianic chapter, and... Um, and uh, there, in this chapter, actually, there's five, Micah, I believe, reveals five descriptions of the coming Messiah through the, his prophecies here. And so we're going to look at those five descriptions of the coming Messiah. So chapter five begins with now, the word now, which, you know, it could be translated meanwhile. So in other words, you know, after looking into the distant future, of the and it would be distant future for Micah, of course, of the kingdom age. Micah now takes a step back into the little bit closer future, the nearer future. And so, in chapter five, verse one begins: "Now gather yourself in troops, O daughter of troops. He has laid siege against us. They will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek." The first description of the Messiah is that he will be the judge of Israel. That Hebrew judge, you know, we have in our own minds, we probably have a concept of what a judge is in our culture. But what this word means in the Hebrew, it encompasses all the facets and functions of government. In other words, the executive, the legislative, and the judicial. It's basically the government. In fact, Isaiah 9.6 tells us, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. So this is what we're talking about when we're talking about the judge of Israel. Now, there would be multiple times when Jerusalem would be sieged. The Assyrians would siege Jerusalem, the Babylonians, and the Romans. And then for a ruler to be struck on the cheek was an extreme insult. So it's possible Micah could have been looking towards uh, the time when the Babylonians sieged Jerusalem. When that happened, they captured King Zedekiah and his sons. They were trying to flee Jerusalem. And they killed Zedekiah's sons before his eyes. And then they plucked out his eyes. So that would be the last thing that he would have saw with his eyes was his sons being murdered. And then they went ahead and they put chains on him and led him to Babylon and put him into prison. But I don't think that's what Micah is talking about here. I think Micah is looking beyond that about 700 years later to the underlying reason Jerusalem was sieged by the Romans. And that was because at that time Israel rejected her true judge, Jesus Christ. Now, in addition to Micah, Isaiah also prophesied that God's ruler would suffer injury and insult. God's judge, excuse me, would suffer injury and insult. Isaiah 50, verse 6, it says, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. 
Zechariah also did. In chapter 13, verse 7, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Those are prophecies about what happened to the judge of Israel. Well, these prophecies were literally fulfilled when the chief priests and the scribes arrested Jesus on the night before he was crucified. In John 18.22, the high priest had asked Jesus some questions, and Jesus responded, and it says in verse 22, And when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Do you answer the high priest like that? In Matthew chapter 26, verse 67, it says, Then they spat in his face and beat him, and others struck him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy to us, Christ, who is the one who struck you? Can you imagine that? Jesus who knows. Jesus who created them. Jesus who knows everything about them. Blindfolded and they're striking him and they're saying, hey, prophesy, who struck us? Well, then the Roman soldiers later added insult to injury. Matthew 27, verse 28. It says, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spat on him, took the reed, and struck him on the head. So the very first thing that Micah reveals is the Messiah will be the judge of Israel, and he's going to be rejected and insulted by them. Verse 2, But you, Bethlehem Epaphrathah, Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. This verse here, the, the Jewish leaders, they recognize that this was pertaining to the Messiah. And they, when, when Jesus was born, remember the wise men came, they, they came to Jerusalem. They were asking, hey, where's he who's born king of the Jews? And Herod was like, what's this all about? And he asked, the, he asked the Jewish religious leaders, where's the Christ to be born? And they said, well, Scripture says in Bethlehem. And they quoted literally verse 2 here of Micah. So the second description here of the Messiah is that he's going to be the ruler in Israel. Now, Micah prophesies this ruler is going to be born in that little town called Bethlehem, which is just a little ways outside of Jerusalem. Always have to wonder about that. You know, why wouldn't God choose Jerusalem, you know, to be the birthplace of the Messiah? I mean, wouldn't that make sense? I mean, he's the Messiah. Judaism, you know, is centered. That's the headquarters, basically, for Judaism. Why wouldn't God choose Jerusalem to be the birthplace of the ruler in Israel? And why wouldn't God choose the ruler to be born into a family of like high pedigree, you know, like the high priests, like the, the, you know, whoever the high priest was, it was his son or something like that, or, or the rabbis. But God didn't do that. Instead, God chose Bethlehem, a very small town outside of Jerusalem. It literally was one among thousands of nondescript towns in, in Judea or in Judah uh, to be the ruler, uh, to be the birthplace of the ruler, excuse me. Now, although Jesus did descend from King David, his parents were poor, and they were of low, de- low pedigree um, by the world's standards. In fact, Jesus, you know, he dri- describes himself in Matthew eleven twenty nine. he says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. So just humble beginnings for the Messiah. Why did God choose Bethlehem to be the birthplace of Israel's ruler? Man, I don't know. I don't have any idea why. But you know what? I take comfort in the fact that he was. 
Because what that tells me is God doesn't judge success the way the world judges success. Or even as Christians sometimes judge success. You know, Bethlehem, the word means house of bread. And Epaphrathra, that was its original name before it was called Bethlehem. And it named, its uh, name means fruitful. And so here God chose this simple, nondescript town to bring forth, and it was the house of bread, to bring forth the bread of life. You know, whose sacrifice would produce eternal fruit that continues down even to our day today. Even today, people are benefiting from the fruit of Christ's sacrifice when they accept Christ as their Savior, when they repent of their sins. Now, that encourages me because that tells me that God doesn't judge the way the world judges. That he can take someone insignificant like you or I and take us and use us for his glory and he can produce fruit, eternal, lasting fruit in someone in a life as simple and humble as you and me. That encourages me. What else do we learn of this ruler in Israel? Well, his goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. That's fascinating. You know, although he was born a man in Bethlehem, he's obviously not just a man. The Son of God pre-existed as the second person of the Trinity. In fact, John 8, 58, Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Remember, I am. That's how God revealed himself to Abraham there. Actually, to Moses. I think it was Moses. Um, How he revealed him to to, uh, Moses at the burning bush. The I am. And you know, some people say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. But you know what's interesting? The Jews that he spoke that to, they knew that he was talking about being God because they picked up stones to try to stone him for blasphemy because he, they said, being a man claims to be God. In 1 Peter 1.20, it says, He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. And Jesus, when he was praying before he was crucified, in John 17, verse 5, it says, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had before, with you before the world was. So he was preexistent from eternity past. He was never created. In fact, the Bible teaches us that Jesus was the creator, is the creator of everything that exists. John 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. He's creator of everything. In Colossians 1.16, Paul says this, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. You know, not only is he the creator, but he is upholding all things, the Bible says, by the word of his power. You know, the scientists talk about that cosmic glue that, you know, how do the, how do the molecules, how do the atoms, how, how, how do the electrons stay in their orbit around the proton, you know, and, and the nucleus. I'm, see, I'm not that good at that stuff. You know, how, they don't understand what keeps, holds that together. Well, it's being upheld by the power of God's, by Jesus himself, by his power. He had no beginning and he's going to have no end. Revelation 1.8, I am the Alpha and the Omega the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is 
and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. You know, just a little side thing on this, kind of a kind of a funny, not funny, but an interesting thing. If you take a Jehovah's Witness, and I haven't done this yet, I'd like to try this, but if you take a Jehovah's Witness, you know, they they believe in Jehovah, right? And but they don't believe that Jesus is God. And you could take them to a lot of Old Testament scriptures in Isaiah. There's a few of them where the Lord, and they, the Lord says, "I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end." Um, and and you could say, "Well, who who's speaking here?" And they'll tell you, "Well, that's Jehovah, that's Yahweh." And so you can go through all those scriptures, and when you get to Revelation, the same words are being spoken. Well, who's saying that? And it's Jesus. So. If you ever want to challenge a Jehovah's Witness, that would be one way to do that. So this ruler in Israel, although he was born a man, he was manifested to the world by the name Jesus, but he's also Emmanuel, the Bible says, God with us, the preexistent Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. Verse 3, it says, Therefore he shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. Then the remnant of his children shall return to the children of Israel. They, or Israel, is going to be given up, or you could say given over to their enemies, until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. You know, there's a time when a person or a people refuse to submit to God's authority in their lives, and they refuse to turn from their sin. And it's those times when God gives them over to their sin. In other words, he allows them to experience the consequences of their rebellion. And it sometimes includes allowing the enemy to rule over them. God allows that if people just are stubbornly refuse to turn back to him or to repent of their sins. And in a sense, the Jews down through the ages, ever since the destruction of Jerusalem, have, have this sense that they've been given over to their enemies. That, that God seems distant from them. Well, it says here, he shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. The very first thing I think is, well, that must be speaking about Mary. And it, it could be. But I think there's also a partial fulfillment in the birth of the state of Israel. In Isaiah 66, verse 7, it says this, Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came, she delivered a male child. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to give birth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she gave birth to her children. And what that's speaking about is the nation state of Israel. It was literally born in one day, on May 14th, 1948. In one day they became a nation. And since the birth of the nation-state of Israel, we've seen this steady flow of, of Jews coming from all over the world, coming back to Israel. There's a remnant returning back to Israel. But again, I don't think this is exactly what Micah is speaking about. I think the ultimate fulfillment of this revolves God's promise in the garden way back in the beginning. Remember when Eve was tempted by the serpent? And God cursed the serpent. And he says, he says this, though. In Genesis 3.15, he says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. It's interesting. That's in the very beginning of the Bible, in the beginning of the book, the beginning of the story. Well, you flip all the way over to the end of the story, to the book of Revelation. And John has a revelation of the woman and her seed and the enmity between her seed and the serpent. Listen to this, Revelation 12, verse 1. 
Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor, labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was, uh, with, who was ready to give birth, to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all the nations with the rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. And of course, this is a beautiful picture speaking of Jesus being born. Well, the ultimate fulfillment of verse 3 is going to happen at the end of the tribulation when Israel as a nation, recognizes Jesus as their Savior. You know, there's a remnant right now. There's a small portion of of Jewish people that are Messianic Jews. They recognize that Jesus is their Savior now. But the vast majority of Jews do not recognize Jesus as their Savior. They're still waiting for a Messiah. And of course, there will be someone who's going to come who they're going to think is a Messiah. He's going to be a guy with a lot of good plans, a, peace, a guy that brings peace you know, to the Middle East and, and uh, might even have them, you know, I believe he'll be the one instrumental in allowing them to rebuild their temple. And they're going to look at him and they're going to go, that's the Messiah. Of course, they'll be deceived. But when Jesus returns at the end of the tribulation, the Jews that are alive during that day, they're going to see Jesus the book of Zechariah talks about it. The book of Ezekiel talks about it. They're going to see Jesus, and they're going to recognize him as their Savior. And from that point, um, he's going to reign and rule from Jerusalem during the kingdom age. And all those Jews, all of them are going to come back to Israel. Verse 4, And he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall abide, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. So the next description that we see of the Messiah here is that he's a shepherd that feeds his flock. And like a shepherd, the Lord will lead his people, Israel, back to the land, and he's going to tenderly care for them at that time. He's a shepherd that provides for his flock. There's so many scriptures dealing with shepherds. Psalm 23, verse 1, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You know, as I was growing up, I'd hear that. It's like, it didn't make sense to me. What do you mean? The Lord's my shepherd. I don't want him. <laughs> that's not what it means. That's the, way I, that's the way I thought as a kid. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. It means I shall not lack for anything. I'm not going to be in need of anything. I'm not going to be wanting. I'm gonna, I'm, I'm, he supplies. Uh, he makes me to lie down in green pastures, and he leads me beside still waters. The shepherd provides for his flock. He's also a good shepherd. John 10, 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. A shepherd that knows his sheep, John 10, 14. I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and am known by my own. And he's a shepherd that leads his sheep, John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. You know, that's one of the things that I always am praying and always seeking after is recognizing the voice of my shepherd. When he speaks, we hear a lot of voices speaking to us, don't we? 
The world speaks to us. Our own flesh speaks to us. You know, there's all these things bombarding us, and, and, and some speak so loud, and yet for us, we need to just get quiet before the Lord and hear his still small voice and recognize the voice of his shepherd. You know, and that takes practice. Sometimes, you know, we do something, we go, I think, I think the Lord's leading me in this, and we do something, we find out, you know, that wasn't really the Lord's will. It's okay if you learn from it and go, okay, well, I, now I recognize that that wasn't the shepherd speaking to me. And through the process of elimination, you start learning who the shepherd is, and you start recognizing his voice. Well, when the shepherd of Israel brings them back into the land and restores Israel in the kingdom age, his flock will abide. And that word means to sit or to dwell, to endure. In Micah, we looked at this in chapter 4, verse 4, the end of the tribulation and in the kingdom age, it says, But everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. They're going to dwell in peace and safety and prosperity at that time. Now, if you have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ this morning, the Bible says that you and I, we abide in Christ Jesus, our shepherd, even now, today. Ephesians 2.6 tells us that we sit in Christ. In Ephesians 2.6, God has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In other words, your and my position is secure in Christ Jesus. The Bible says we're kept by Christ. 1 Peter 1.8, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. That's such a comfort to me that I'm kept by God rather than trying to hang on to my salvation by my own strength and my own ability. If I just hang in there, I'll make it to the end. Well, that's not it. We're kept by the power of God. The Bible says we're also preserved in Christ in Jude 1.1. And the Bible says nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. What a beautiful, you and I have that abiding presence. We, we, we can abide in our, in our salvation in the Lord. Micah 5, 5a, oh, sorry, the first part of Micah verse 5. I'm reading my notes. Too. We get to the fourth description of the Messiah here. And this one shall be peace. Isn't that interesting? It doesn't say that this one shall be the bringer of peace, although Jesus does bring peace. He doesn't say that he's a peacemaker, although he is, right? God, uh, we have peace with God through Christ Jesus. The Bible just says simply, he is peace. As Paul says in Ephesians 2.14, he himself is our peace. Just letting that sink in. John 14, 27, Jesus said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Now we have peace in Christ Jesus because he is our peace. Well, the rest of verse 5 says, When the Assyrian comes into our land, and when he treads in our palaces, then we will raise, up, raise against him seven shepherds and eight princely men. Now, at the time that Micah wrote these prophecies, Assyria was the main threat to Israel. At that time, Babylon wasn't a threat. Assyria was the world empire. They were the threat. Now, the problem is, this chapter, like I said in the beginning, it's messianic, and it's highly prophetic of future events. 
And the issue is Nineveh, which was the capital, and the rest of Assyria fell in 612 B.C. So the Assyrians was a dead nation. Assyria was a dead nation long before Christ's first coming. In fact, today, there are no Assyrians alive today. You don't have any neighbors that are Assyrians. I can guarantee that. They might say they are, but they're not. There's no Assyrians alive today. So who is this Assyrian that that Micah is speaking about? I think it seems most likely the Assyrian is a name for the coming Antichrist. The coming world leader that's going to bring, like I mentioned, peace. It'll be a false peace, but he's going to bring peace to the world. He's going to be this great world leader. The Antichrist will be an Assyrian, not by nationality, but by geography. And the reason why is because Assyria is located right around present-day Iraq. And the Antichrist is going to rule the world from a restored Babylon, which is right there in Iraq. Zechariah 5, verse 5 through 11 talks about it, the land of Shinar, which is the land of Babylon. So the, the Assyrian, I think, is speaking of the Antichrist. He's going to come into the land of Israel, enter the temple, and demand that he is worshipped as God. Now, what's really fascinating is there's no literal fulfillment of prophecy in history regarding seven shepherds and eight princely men. There's, there's nothing. You can't find that anywhere in the history books. So either we have to take this as a symbolic prophecy, and I have a hard time with any symbolic prophecies, or it's yet to be fulfilled. When could that possibly be fulfilled? Well, probably, my guesstimation is during the second half of the Great Tribulation. It's when the Antichrist's fury, you know, at first he's going to, there's going to be peace. The, Israel's, the Jews are going to love this man. They're going to think he's the Messiah. And then halfway through that Great Tribulation, he's going to turn on Israel. And he's going to unleash his fury against Israel because he's going to stand in the temple and he's going to say, I'm God, worship me. And then they're going to realize that they've been fooled all this time. And then his fury is going to be unleashed. Well, it's possible that there will be a band of leaders of Jewish men, possibly Jewish men, who are going to lead a resistance against Antichrist. It's very possible. We don't know. So I think it's very possible that this will be literally fulfilled at some point and hasn't been fulfilled yet. Verse 6, they shall waste with the sword the land of Assyria and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. Thus they shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land, when he treads within our borders. Here's another name we haven't heard in a long time, the land of Nimrod. Nimrod was the guy who built Nineveh about 12 centuries before. It's fascinating that, you know, go all the way back to, the, to Genesis chapter 10, I believe it is, that talks about Nimrod. And now it's the land of Nimrod he's talking about here. Well, the rest of this chapter now describes the fifth description of the Messiah, and that's that he will be the deliverer of Israel. Verse 7, Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, that tarry for no man, nor wait for the sons of men. As we've stated before in Micah and other chapters, God always has a faithful remnant, a remnant of faithful followers in every generation. The remnant of Jacob, or the Jews who will be alive uh, at that time, they're going to be in the midst of many peoples. And I think it's like speaking like dew from the Lord. You know, when I think of dew, 
dew is everywhere when it's on the ground, right? It's not here and there. It's, it's everywhere. It's like a blanket covering everything. And I think what Micah is saying here is when the Messiah delivers Israel at the end of the tribulation, it's going to be a large deliverance. It's not going to be local. It's not going to be minor. It's going to be a major deliverance. In fact, Paul says in Romans eleven twenty six, at that time, all Israel will be saved. Verse 8, And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the Gentiles, in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, who, if he passes through, both treads down and tears in pieces, and none can deliver. Your hand shall be lifted against your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. So this remnant, there will be like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, in other words, the Gentiles assembled to fight Israel, they're going to be as vulnerable as a flock of sheep trying to fend off a lion attacking them. When the Messiah delivers Israel at the end of the tribulation, it's going to be a powerful deliverance. You know, God right now, he's preserving the nation of Israel. You know, he, they've got daily attacks occurring, practically daily attacks occurring against them. They've got nations that want nothing better than to destroy them. And God is preserving them miraculously. But, you know, I, I have to read this one article to you because it, it was fascinating to me. There's this German journalist who he spent 10 days with ISIS fighters in, in Iraq and Syria and so he kind of gained their confidence, and he was talking to them about their, their strategy, their battle strategies, and everything. And this article says, The United States and Russia may be hitting ISIS harder than anyone with constant attacks from the air, but Israel is the only country the Islamic State group truly fears, according to a German reporter who spent 10 days with the organization in Iraq and Syria. The only country ISIS fears is Israel. Jürgen Todenhofer, 75, who visited the territory under the control of ISIS accompanied by his son, told British uh, online news site, Jewish News, they told me they know the Israeli army is too strong for them. Um, it goes on talking about their thing. They're like, you know, we can, we're not worried about the, the U.S. We're not worried about the British. We're not worried about any other nation. But they're afraid of Israel. And it's, it's, you know, God's been miraculously preserving the nation of Israel. Well, in that day, at the end of that great tribulation, not only is the Messiah going to deliver them from their enemies, but he will deliver them from their own idolatry. Look at verse 10. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that I will cut off your horses from your midst and destroy your chariots. Now, in, in Bible, in biblical times, horses and chariots were strategic military equipment. If you had a horse and a, and a chariot, you could take out a lot of foot soldiers. And so it speaks of military strength. And although Israel has a very strong and a feared military, as we're just reading here, ISIS is afraid of them, in that day when all the nations are going to turn against Israel. The battle is going to be so overwhelming that unless the Lord delivers them, they're going to be wiped out. They won't be able to rely on their military strength, their military prowess, unless the Lord delivers them. So he says, I'm going to destroy your horses and your chariots. In fact, verse 7 says this. Yet, oh, excuse me, Hosea, verse 7 says this. 
Hosea 1, verse 7. <laughs> Yet I will have mercy on the house of Judah, will save them by the Lord their God, and will not save them by bow, nor by sword or battle, by horses or horsemen. In Psalm 20, verse 7, it says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stand upright. Save, Lord, may the king answer us when we call. Verse 11 says, I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. So while horses and chariots speak of military strength, cities and strongholds speak of uh, defensive strength, you know, shelter, protection. But in the case of both, they're false trusts. And God says, I'm going to take away anything that you trust in that's not me. It makes you, me and I, you and I should ask the same question. What are, what are we trusting in today? Are we trusting in our abilities, our power, our security? The Bible says those are all false hopes. Our strength only comes from the Lord. Well, he continues, verse 12, I will cut off sorceries from your hand, and you shall have no soothsayers. Now, sorceries speaks of witchcraft, the occult, and spiritualism. Soothsayers speaks of fortune-telling, divining, and astrology. And in the New Testament, sorcery is the Greek word pharm- pharmakeia, which is where we get the word pharmacy. Now, even down in Micah's day, mind-altering drugs were associated with witchcraft. And you know what's fascinating to me? I really do believe that we're drawing close to the, to the end days. I believe the Lord's coming back soon. And, and it's interesting to me how much our culture, and not only our culture, but worldwide, how we are as a people embracing recreational drug use. And it's like, okay, well, it's just, it's the, just the times we're in. Well, I think it's fascinating to me because I think what's happening is we're developing a generation of people who are going to be in a stupor, who are going to be apathetic, and they're going to be ripe for spiritual deception. I, I, you know, you, you see all these things, and you look at them as isolated, the drug epidemic, you know, the, 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 the whatever other epidemic, violence and all that stuff. All I see is, man, the stage is getting set for that great deception, for the crisis returning soon. And I, I just see things falling into place for that. Verse 13, Your carved images I will also cut off, and your sacred pillars from your midst. You shall no more worship the work of your hands. I will pluck your wooden images from your midst. Thus I will destroy your cities. God would destroy the things that are inherently good. I mean, you know, horses and chariots are not bad. Homes and strongholds, they're not bad. The things that you and I do, our, our savings accounts, you know, our, our jobs, our, our careers, those, none of those things are bad. They're good. But he's also going to destroy things that are inherently bad, which are their idols. And the thing is, an idol is anything that stands between your relationship with the Lord. Anything that gets between you and the Lord is an idol. He says, you shall no more worship the work of your hands, the things that we set up in place of the Lord in our lives. I like what F.B. Meyer said. Horses, chariots, and walled cities are classed with witchcrafts, etc., because they weaned away the trust of God's people. You see, even good things 
that you and I have in our lives, they could become bad for us if we put more trust in them than the Lord. And God says, I'm going to take all those things away from you. It's just, you're just going to have me. And you know, sometimes the Lord does that in our lives. He takes away those things that we, we have this false trust in these things, and God will remove them from us because he wants us to just focus on him. He wants us to just see him. So if we end up worshiping idols, we end up spending more time serving them than the Lord. You know, idolatry is an insidious problem. I had to look that up because it's like, I know that word, but I don't know exactly what it means. This is what it means. Operating or proceeding in an inconspicuous or seemingly harmless way, but with grave effect. And you see, that's idolatry. It creeps in. To the best of us, our eyes start getting turned off of the Lord and start getting turned on other things, and 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 it's sneaky and it's 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 just after a while you realize, man, I've been drifting, and you realize how far you've gone from the Lord. You didn't realize it when you were happening, but that's why you and I need to guard our hearts. We need to regularly examine our hearts to see if we've turned from the Lord, if we've turned to other things. And one good way is you know look at your priorities. What's the priority in your life right now? What do you spend the most of your time on? What do you treasure most? What are you devoted to the most in your life right now? That usually is a pretty good indicator of where your heart is at. Well, so the Lord's not only going to deliver Israel from their enemies, but he's also going to deliver them from their idolatries. And then finally, verse 15 And I will execute vengeance in anger and fury on the nations that have not heard. Those that have rejected God's warnings, they've heard, but they've not obeyed. You know, during the tribulation, there's going to be this one angel, and he's going to have a special assignment that nobody else has. In Revelation 8, 13, it says this, And I looked, and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. If you picture this, there's going to be this angel flying through the air shouting, Woe to the earth. And you would think in the middle of the tribulation with all these disasters happening, the world's falling apart, you'd think, and then this angel flying around, you know, saying, well, you think of people go, wow, okay, I need to repent. I need to turn back to the Lord. But you know what? They're not going to repent. The Bible even says they're going to shake their fists at God every time that he does something. Why? How come they don't repent? Well, it's because I think what, the writer of Hebrews says here, Hebrews three twelve and 13, says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through deceitfulness of sin. You see, sin can harden your heart. It's deceitful. It's insidious. Idolatry is insidious, but it can harden your heart and turn you away from the Lord. There's a grave danger for each of us in hearing God's warnings, but not heeding and obeying them. It's an inherent danger. And so we need to take heed to what we, what we read. We need to take heed to what the Spirit speaks to us in our Bible studies, in our time alone with Him in the Word. That's all for today. We're going to continue here in uh, Micah chapter 6 next week. Why don't you stand up and let's go to the Lord in prayer. And Father, we do come before you this morning 
Lord, I thank you for these reminders. Lord, I thank you for the security that we have in you. But Lord, I also thank you for the reminder and the warning that, Lord, Lord, we need to examine our hearts. We need to make sure that we haven't uh, drifted from you. And so, Father, this morning, I pray that each one of us would, would hearken to your word, to what your spirit is saying to each one of us, Lord, and that we would be obedient, Lord, that we would not only be hearers that deceive ourselves, but doers of your word. So I thank you for providing us with this lesson this morning. And Father, now I pray that we might, by the power of your Holy Spirit, uh, walk in obedience, Lord. We can't do it apart from your spirit, Lord. We can't do it on our own. We need your spirit to, to enable us to do this, Lord, to live our life pleasing to you. And so, Lord, we ask that you would do that this morning. I thank you for each person here this morning. Lord, I pray that you would fill them with your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that you might bless them this coming week. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.